great uh, pleasure to have uh, Robert Schiller with us here today, um, who's uh, one of the world's best-known economists. Uh, I had the privilege of studying his work when uh, I was a student. I don't think I'm that much younger than he is, but uh, in those days we learned about term structure models, and variance bounds on interest rate models, and variance bounds on stock prices, and the uh, temporal behavior of stock prices related in those days to things like uh, the amount of debt in the economy appeared in some of his pictures, I remember. A very interesting picture to look at. It's a great picture to teach. Well, I think a 1981 paper in the AR. But over the years, Bob Schiller's really been at the forefront of uh, empirical uh, macro finance and has made a number of very distinguished contributions. But unlike a lot of analytical economists, he actually communicates very effectively with the uh, broader public, which he's done uh, through a number of writings. Uh, published a, a number of very important books. I had the pleasure of introducing Bob back in the year 2000 when I sat over there and uh, he came and talked about his book Irrational Exuberance which had some terrific graphs in it and I remember I think the graphs might be upside down these days but we, I was crooking my neck to uh, sort of see these peaks in the price earnings multiple of the NASDAQ and was sort of saying look at that that's not sustainable see how much it's gone up and I think about three weeks later it tanked uh, it was quite remarkable, very prescient. So uh, today, uh, he's going to talk about uh, some work that he's been doing in the uh, behavioral area, and it's with an ex-professor of the LSE, that's uh, uh, George Akerlof, um, very distinguished economist as well, who, of course, got the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And they, between them, they've been at the forefront of advancing uh, some elements of behavioral economics, but always with a keen understanding of what we teach. Uh, this is stuff founded in the very principles of economics. So for the students here, you can't really understand the best stuff of Schiller and Akerlof without really learning a lot of economics. But at the same time, you can get a very good feel for what these people talk about by reading their works. And you'll see today that Bob does manage to contact, uh, really uh, make contact with a broad audience in the way he presents his ideas. So um, I should say this lecture was originally uh, introduced on the LSE's webs website as animals and economics. So for those of you that have come here expecting to meet a zoologist, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed, but I think you'll still be entertained. So without more ado, I'd just say, like to say thank you uh, to Bob Schiller for coming yet again to the LSE, and we look forward to his presentation. In terms of the structure, we're going to have essentially a three-quarter hour uh, overview of, of his ideas, which are in this book, and then we're going to open it up to uh, the floor for discussions. And we have 45 minutes available, but uh, we do have to be out of here by 2 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I wasn't going to talk about animals in economics, but actually there is an emerging field of people doing experiments with monkeys. Uh, and uh, Keith Chen uh, has... Uh, taught monkeys how to use money. And uh, unfortunately, they're starting to develop bad behavior patterns <laughs> as a result. Uh, so uh, the term, uh, the title of our book, uh, George Akerlof and I, comes from uh, an old phrase, animal spirits. Uh, actually, it goes back to ancient times, spiritus animalis. Uh, and it, uh, that's Latin. Uh, it refers to. Uh, the animating spirit uh, that drives people, and animals, I guess, as well. But the point is that 
um, psychology matters. The term was used by John Maynard Keynes in his 1936 book, uh, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. And he was there uh, pointing out some of the limitations of rational mathematical economics. In that treatise, uh, he pointed out that decision theory, I don't know if he used the term decision theory, but he was referring to it, uh, presumes that people know probabilities of future events, but in fact, they don't. And he thought that if people were completely rational as economic theory uh, dictates, they might, uh, they might be paralyzed into inaction. Because if I'm trained to do decision uh, tree analysis, I need those probabilities, and if I don't have them, uh, he pointed out that we have business plans that business people construct, and they just make it up, right? It's, it's part of their imagination. Nobody knows if you're going to start a business. Is this going to succeed, or does the world need this, or what's coming? And nobody ever knows. And the problem is that we have variations in these animal spirits that, uh, that drive the economy. In, uh, my co-author, George Akerlof, was president of the American Economic Association, and a few years ago he gave his presidential address entitled The Missing Motivation in Economics, pointing out that uh, modern macroeconomics seems to misrepresent uh, what really drives people. Uh, and I think this ultimately comes around to our uh, failure general failure to predict this crisis because a lot of the things that ought to be in economics, the animal spirits, are not being modeled. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, we intend this book as a, a serious book about the way uh, macroeconomics should move in the future. It's part of a bigger picture of uh, revolution in economics going on now, the behavioral economics revolution. And uh, uh, this has been evolving over 20 years now. It's still a minority, I think, field within the profession. It's been most strong in behavioral finance. And I'm not quite sure why. Uh, for uh, al almost 20 years, I've been organizing seminars with Richard Thaler uh, on behavioral finance at the National Bureau in the US. And we get bigger audiences there. Uh, I don't know why. I think maybe because there's money to be made in behavioral finance. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, hard, it's a little bit hard to. I, I, Richard Posner, in his review of our book in the New Republic, uh, complained that, well, behavioral economists haven't predicted this crisis either, most of them. Well, uh, in my reply, I said, well, there are very few behavioral macroeconomists. Um, and so. Uh, we need to change the field. And so this book doesn't provide answers to everything, but it does have a plea to uh, broadening our scope of macro theorizing. Um, so how do I advance the slide? Anyone have an idea how I use a mouse to <laughs> advance the slide? Click on it twice. Oh, there's a keyboard. Oh, I see. <laughs> Got it. All right. Uh, George, in his uh, well, he won the Nobel Prize 
uh, for his economics. And in his uh, acceptance speech, he referred to his favorite cartoonist, Edward Koren, uh, who is frequently seen in the New Yorker magazine. Uh, because Koren, uh, sh he shows people. These are people, by the way. But he always makes them look like animals in his cartoons. And it reveals uh, something about our, our animal side. And so we asked Corin to do us our cover for it. And this is what he came up. We asked him to illustrate animal spirits. I think we were lucky. Um, it shows how our emo emotions uh, um, are correlated with the uh, business cycle. It doesn't, though, uh, I, I guess we can't ask too much of a cartoonist. But uh, it doesn't show what is our basic thesis, that it's these emotional changes that are the drivers of the economy, or substantially the drivers of the economy. The e I think it's been one of the biggest uh, complaints about macroeconomics is that they never said what's driving the whole thing. Uh, this is an embarrassing omission, in a sense. You want to know first the somewhat energy balance. Where is it all coming from? Uh, and people have been worried about that for a long time. So Jevons, in the 19th century, said, well, maybe it's the sun. The variations in solar output. That was a nice try, but it's wrong. It's not sunspots, as he meant it. Uh, and people who've tried to figure that out over the years uh, in past have thought that it's probably something psychological is an important driver. I mean, people feel that they're reacting rationally to the circumstance. But what got us into this circumstance? Uh, so um, A.C. Pigou, who was a contemporary of Keynes, wrote in his 1929 book, industrial fluctuations. Uh, he thought it proper to answer what causes these fluctuations. And he didn't have any way of proving it, but he just said his guess was that 25% of the macro fluctuations we see are due to real causes. Uh, and that means things like wars or they invent the railroad, and so there's a burst of activity while they build railroads, that sort of thing, uh, harvest variations. 50%, he said, was due to monetary causes, gold discoveries, bank runs and failures, that sort of thing. And 50% was due to psychological causes. Now, you may note that my numbers don't add up to 100%. <laughs> and and uh, he actually noted that, too, that he was smarter than you think. He, he said, well, these two things interact and amplify each other, so it adds up to more than 100%. But what are psychological causes? Well, approximately quoting him, he said, these are changes in, I'm quoting him, in men's minds that uh, occur even though there may be a constant basis of fact. We just think differently from time to time. And I think he was referring to a social phenomenon, uh, social, uh, that uh, we, we are all part of a society and we change our thinking uh, as thinking changes. We, uh, in our book, Akerlof and I uh, break down uh, our contribution to this uh, inconstancy. Uh, uh, by the way, it, I, would, I would adapt, I would change Pigou's things now because we now have modern central banks that are not contributing 50% to the fluctuate. I don't believe that. I think that it's negative. That is, they are reducing the fluctuations, not adding to fluctuations. So that leaves us with if we take Pigou, with psychological causes as the main causes of our economic fluctuations. Even though at a moment of time, we may feel that we're behaving perfectly rationally, but it's the whole society. It's like an army in retreat, for example. 
Are they rational? Well, yeah, they're rational because everyone else is retreating. I'm going to retreat too. But the, collectively, there's something that may not have been rational. So we emphasize uh, five things. Uh, confidence, fairness, corruption, money illusion, and stories. Let me start with confidence. Fluctuations. What, what's wrong now with the world economy? Very simple. It's understood widely. It's wrong that because people think the economy is in trouble. So consumers don't want to spend. They don't want to put a new addition on the house. They don't want to buy a new car because they might lose their job. They know they're in a risky situation. So you pull back on all that. And similarly, uh, companies don't want to expand operations. They don't want to hire new people because they might have to lay them off again. You know, things don't look great. So, and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everyone thinks times are bad, and so they are bad. This is uh, something that was widely perceived and in the Great Depression, which I will, uh, without any shame, refer to as an example, but I'm not saying we're going to see that uh, severity right now. Franklin Roosevelt said in his 1933 inaugural speech, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Uh, we are, he said, we are struck by no plague of locusts, meaning nothing real hit the economy. It was all psychological. Uh, now, I don't think that was a very original statement because I think everybody knew that, but somehow it's very quotable because he said it. But, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, so, um, so confidence, and we talk about a confidence multiplier, is an epidemic, a contagion effect. It's social contagion. The human species is empathetic. We feel each other's emotions. That's part of the human design. We also tell stories, and the stories have a word of mouth contagion like viruses. There's a similarity between the influenza epidemic and the decline in the economy. It's the same sort of thing. Something is spreading. Some negative thoughts are spreading because of the contagion they have in this environment. We, uh, we also emphasize fairness, uh, and that is something that is usually not mentioned by economists, but it, uh, is a, it, it's a very important element of our functioning of our economy that people want to be treated fairly. They want to live feel that they live in a just society. They get angry when they're treated unfairly. And this has important impacts. Notably, it creates a downward rigidity on wages. The other thing is corruption. We believe there's a corruption, or maybe a looser, a weaker term than corruption, a bad faith cycle that occurs. Bad faith, that's another, uh, malo, was it malo fides in Latin? It's another old idea. A businessman is not dealing with you in good faith. Even if that business person is not lying, but is not volunteering something that you really should know in this business deal. Uh, and that kind of thing am is amplified in boom periods. People become complacent and uh, accepting and trusting, and then the trust is abused in the good part of the cycle. And then in the down cycle, anger develops, and the anger is... Uh, then results in a, a, a pulling back of everyone, a, a sense that I, uh, when you don't trust someone, then you, you have to read the fine print you know, uh, on some document, and so that means you'll never sign it. Uh, and that, that's part of what pulls us back. And it generates a general sense of anger, uh, which I think is partly responsible right now for the, uh, the MP expensing uh, scandal that's happening around us. The intensity of the anger is higher than it would have been if it happened at another time. Uh, and this kind of anger then creates uh, uh, potential problems that are 
that are hard to quantify but are, are very, real, very real if this situation isn't uh, corrected. Fourth is we emphasize money illusion, and that is that people have trouble protecting themselves against price level changes. Uh, this was particularly important in the Great Depression, but it hasn't happened yet now, but uh, because there was deflation in the Depression, and it caused uh, to amplify all debts. Anyone who owed money owed more in real terms. And this caused a housing crisis uh, because people had mortgages on their homes, which now were amplified. They couldn't pay them. They were going bankrupt in huge numbers. Uh, but it was ultimately a failure to understand price level changes. And finally, the fifth main element of our thing, which is kind of unusual, I think, to uh, behavioral economics, is we, we wanted to emphasize the social psychological literature on stories, or what I say is narrative-based thinking. Economists tend to present people as having a certain pattern of thinking uh, which is rational and calculating. But social psychologists emphasize that we tend to be motivated by stories more than you'd think. And we have trouble remembering statistics and numbers. So what do you hear when you go, uh, go to Las Vegas? I went there recently for the first time. And I did the listen in to what people are talking about. Now, you might imagine that they're calculating probabilities, right? You listen on the bus to the casino. What are they talking about? They're not calculating probabilities. They're telling stories about somebody who won a lot of money uh, and they, they're human interest stories. And we believe that the story changes through time, and the story drives the economy. Uh, Robert Sternberg wrote a book called Love is a Story, uh, and it's about marriage. And he argues that marriages are really built around a story, that successful marriages, you ask the couple to tell stories about each other, and they're warm and loving stories, uh, appreciative stories. Uh, in a bad marriage, you will hear negative stories. Uh, and uh, you can tell that there's something wrong. So our lives are, and so we have a good story and a bad story. The kind of bad story that develops in the Great Depression, it was so uncertain, the uncertainty was so high that uh, it, it left the, the world economy in shambles for many years. Um, so that's the basic theory. Now I wanted first of all to say, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing stories here similar to the US that, um, that people are complaining. Um, see if I have the right button. There's a compl I, I, I don't like to gloat or, or claim that I knew the future, but since everyone is saying that economists failed to predict, including the queen, I'm told, uh, has said, <laughs> said that, uh, casting aspersions at our profession. It's not true that economists haven't predicted. Now, I wrote this in 2005 spring uh, uh, edition of my book, Irrational Exuberance. Uh, I was predicting, I didn't actually predict it. I said it could happen. I said <laughs> could lead. But I felt when I wrote, I remember writing this, that this was going way out on a limb. Uh, I was bringing up the possibility of uh, widespread bankruptcies in uh, personal bankruptcies and financial institutions and a worldwide recession. But I, I just wanted to get that on. That Why did I say this? It was not because I had a dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium model that was <laughs> predicting it. And it was not because I had a vector autoregressive model with interest rate spreads in or something. It was because I was thinking about what was going on in people's minds. Uh, and um, 
So I don't mean to say that I can do this ever again, but I'm, I'm saying that um, the problem is that the econ profession has gotten formalistic in certain ways. I admire what goes on in the profession, mostly. And th this is a correction. I admire mathematical economics, so let's not exaggerate this. But we've, we're missing something when it comes to macro forecasting. We're missing kind of the obvious. So I had a taxi driver in Miami, Florida, around 2005, lay it all out for me. Uh, and he said we were driving, he was, he did this without even knowing I was an economist. He just does this to everyone he gives a ride to. <laughs> and he said, look at all those building cranes. Just amazing. So I'll give you another view. And he was driving me and said, look at that. He says, there's a bubble going on here. Something's, something's going to end badly. Uh, so I went back and looked at the Federal Reserve Working Paper series to see what they were saying at the same time the taxi driver was to, and I went through many working papers and I found hardly any mention of even the possibility of a bubble. I found one paper that did it and then the guy took it back immediately in the next sentence. And so I called him up and asked him about that and he said, well, I have to be careful. You know, we're the central bank here. Anything we say, uh, so he wasn't going to say anything. So, um, okay, so. Um, I just wanted to give you a sense of the magnitude of it. This doesn't look too bad. Uh, this, the blue line here is U.S. real GDP. Uh, and you can, see that's, uh, you can see that it's tipping down recently. Uh, and this is on log scale, so it's a percentage. Change. It looks like uh, we're, we're on a pretty, uh, it doesn't look very impressive, does it? It doesn't look very scary. Uh, but the point is it's going down. Maybe it's not so scary. Maybe you know this is another event that we'll just forget about. Uh, on the other hand, we don't know. Right now, it doesn't show any sign in the data of turning up. I have the red line, which is residential investment. That's construction of homes, of, of additions to homes, and construction of apartment buildings. And you can see that something is the downturn is related to a construction crash. Uh, uh, so it's not you know let's not exaggerate this crisis. Been, unless it's in the future. But it, it looks, uh, you know, it's a question of when will this thing turn? That's the big question. Uh, and then I've got the same thing for the UK, but I only have it back to um, 1958. Uh, so UK, there, it, it looks more volatile, doesn't it, than the US? It looks worse, but I'm not sure that's just the way it laid out. You see a turn down at the very far right. Uh, and it does look related again to uh, a housing uh, cycle. Um, but I think uh, w uh, the housing cycle, both in the US and the UK, have been story driven. I've come back to the theme about stories. The boom periods are periods when people tell stories about flippers. I don't, you know this, right? There have been TV shows and uh, lots of human interest about someone who was outsmarting you while you were making humdrum wages in some job. Somebody else bought three houses. And, and that was the story, that, uh, that uh, part of the story that drove this. Um, so I, again, I'm going back to the US. Uh, this is the, uh, the unemployment rate uh, from uh, 1890 to 1947. Uh, I wanted to show the whole range. That's as far back as you can take it for the US. And you can see the two depressions, the depression of the 1890s that data is, incidentally, the Christina Romer data. She's the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And she said the 90s depression wasn't as bad as you think. So she's revised the numbers down. 
But hey, it looked pretty bad in the 1890s. And the, the big one is the 1930s Depression, uh, which really stands out. That's what we call the Great Depression. Uh, we now have a name for it, a word in the language. Everyone knows Great Depression. Uh, and, uh, and it's associated with vivid stories and images, in fact, because there was good photographers back then. So I think of images of people standing in bread lines or soup kitchen lines, uh, someone selling apples on the street corner, unemployed person. Um, and uh, those images are, are really almost uh, images of human hopelessness and despair. And it, it, the word depression links up with a psychological uh, theory of depression. It seems in our, in our story that it was a, a, an awful time to be alive. What we're seeing now is, uh, to go to the far right, is nothing like either of those two depressions. But hey, it hasn't stopped climbing yet. It seems to be going. The funny thing about these, uh, there's lots of wiggles in there. You see them smaller, uh, those are called recessions. And they tend to come to a very abrupt end. Notice how sharp those peaks are. Uh, that seems to be more of a US phenomenon. I have the US and UK uh, shown uh, on top of each other here. So red is UK. But one of the first lessons that I want to emphasize here is that US and UK are very similar in all of this. Not very, you call that very similar? Well, I'd say it's similar. Every time there was a crisis in the US, there was also a crisis in the UK. Um, and I, I think that uh, it's part of the theme of social psychology that I want to emphasize. And that is that we have a world culture now. And that uh, it goes beyond the US and the UK. This is a world depression, uh, recession. Uh, but I don't think that we necessarily need only economists to explain why it's so ubiquitous. It's because the same stories go from country to country. I've, uh, what really impresses me is the real estate story. I, I try to elicit this when I visit any foreign country. And it's quick, it's easy to do. You get into the cab and you ask the cab driver, what's the real estate market look like? And they, they're, they're very happy to talk about that subject. I was in Moscow recently, and the cab driver who spoke English uh, said, oh, let me show you. He, pointed out an apartment building on Red Square. He said, did you know that an apartment sold there recently for $100,000 per square meter? And he thinks, it's just amazing. I can't imagine who, who's buying that. I got the same feeling in Moscow. And I've seen it in lots of countries. It's part of the culture. It's a culture of real estate excitement that we've had recently. Uh, and. Um, and the, the, the evaporation or the change in that excitement is, I think, responsible for what's going on here. Um, so uh, I mentioned that the depression story is a story that is being retold and brought back. Uh, I don't know if you have this in any other country, but the Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan started in 1951 asking people about this story. And so the question was, uh, which is more likely uh, for the next five years, uh, continuous good times or periods of widespread unemployment or depression? They used the D word. Uh, and they've been asking this regularly. I think this is a very important question because it really relates to the fundamental despair that is the cause of depressions, that if people think that it's going to be hopeless for five more years, this is the kind of thing that would cause them to pull back and not spend any money. It would cause institutions to shut down plans and fire, lay off people. It's exactly this, the negative view of that. 
So they created a score, which you might call a depression confidence, based on this answers to this question from ordinary people. And it was a high number if people are confident they think we'll have continuous good times, and it's a low number if they think we'll have widespread unemployment or depression. So I've got a plot of this for the United States going all the way back to 1951. Uh, and that's this blue line. Uh, the remarkable thing, well, it's remarkable to me. Uh, I wish I could, uh, can I walk over there? Maybe not. I'll lose my mic. Uh, the, um, I, I, you can see that we've had four Great Depression scares. Uh, uh, that's all right. I can. I think uh, since uh, since World War II, and the latest one was in June of 2008. Amazingly, it's over according to these numbers. In May, the, the score went back up to 95, which is virtually on 100, which means. There's uh, just as many people say depression as, or, or say uh, continuous good times as depression. So we're, we're, it's, it's over. This is the funny, and this is what people are wondering now. The, the stock markets, every country of the world, every major country of the world has had a sizable boom in the stock market since March 9th. So isn't this what you're wondering? Isn't that what people are wondering? Maybe we just got our confidence back. Could it be that uh, that <laughs> could it be just that just disappears? The, uh, I guess it, the whole problem would disappear if we got all our confidence back. We'd start back into bidding up home prices, flipping homes again. Are we going to do that? Uh, one thing I though I see from this chart is that this thing has a lot of reversals in it. Uh, from an econometric statement, it's negative serial correlation. And if it jumps up, it's a good chance it's going to jump back down. Um, but um, there's a number of surprising, every time I look at survey data about that reveals what people are actually thinking, I always find puzzles. It's not what you think. Um, uh, one thing that's interesting from this chart is that the period in starting from in the 1950s, confidence was extremely high. And, and this seemed contrary to what I heard. I thought that after World War II, people thought we would sink back into depression. We'd been in depression for over 10 years in the 1930s. Then we had World War II. So what happens when the government cuts back on expenditure at the end and, and everyone's deeply in debt uh, because of the war? Well, you'd think they would go back into the Depression. And economists were warning about this. But the public didn't have the least worry about it. it that was the most confident time we've ever been in. Then we crashed into these Depression scares, one in 74, another one in 79, 80, another one in 1990. And we're in the fourth Great Depression scare. Or we've just ended it. We've just left it, maybe. Or I think we'll go back into it, actually. So we'll, we'll see. I, I won't say it's over. Um, and, but we're the least of the scares in, in, in terms of the general public. So you wonder, what was going on? What was happening? In the, in the 74 scare and in the uh, 80 scare, what it really was was I, it's different. Uh, it, it, people answered as a depression scare. But I think what people were worried about then, what was the big issue? It was that inflation was getting completely out of control. And this was happening all over the world. It was happening in the UK and in the US. And you elected Margaret Thatcher, all right, because, because of 
if you look at public opinion polls, this is it. Because people thought that advanced countries of the world were, were beginning to look like the less developed countries. And they thought that inflation is a terrible disease. It shows it's like getting terribly obese or something. You've, you've lost control of, of your, of your uh, and the government is not making good sense. What they thought was that the central banks would have to clamp down on the economy in order to kill inflation. And that would bring on a depression. And as you know, our central banks did do something. That's how we got high unemployment around that time. But it was a worse scare than we have now because I think inflation was more visceral. We could look at the story. People thought about inflation every time they went shopping. And there was an oil, there was the first and second oil crises. And they thought about that every time they filled up their gas tank. Uh, now the, this scare, I think, is a more of an intellectual scare. Who is most worried? It seems to me uh, commercial real estate uh, people are the most worried that I've met. Uh, and after that, bankers. People who understand balance sheets are worried because they know, uh, and they know that uh, assets are not evaluated properly and there's going to be problems. But the general public, so far, in both the US and the UK, the government has prevented any bad depression-like stories from happening. So Northern Rock failed, and then there was lines forming outside the bank. It looked like another one of those Depression-era runs. But the Bank of England immediately stepped in and bailed them out. And th this is highly controversial. Uh, but similar things have been happening in the US. We had um, uh, Washington Mutual fail. And it started to look like a run on the bank. But immediately, the FDIC went in and corrected it. And they opened the doors again. You can walk into Washington Mutual today, and it looks just the same. The government's running it now. It's been very controversial. Why did our governments do these bailouts? It's not in economic theory. It's not because the vector autoregressive model told them to do that. They did it on gut instinct. They felt we can't let confidence crash. If we let bad things happen, it'll be remembered for 50 years. If we see that our banks can't be trusted, they may never be trusted again within generations. And so it was instinct. I was at a speech recently, Larry Summers, who's I think the economic intellectual of the US White House uh, gave. And he was complaining that he can't get advice about the things he really wants to know from the econ profession. Because he's an econ he was president of Harvard, as you know. So you'd think he would be more boosting of his own profession. He said, I could get tons of expert advice on inflation targeting if I wanted that. But that's kind of all on the back burner now. That's not what he, he wants to know how to do these bailouts, and, and, and that, that's not uh, immediately forthcoming. Um, OK, so uh, I wanted to look. I may have shown this. I was here in November uh, about another book. But this is uh, my favorite chart, which I started plotting in um, 1990, uh, around 2000, with my uh, book, Irrational Exuberance. The blue line is the US stock market from uh, 1871 until I, I stopped it on May 15th of this year. Um, it's in real terms corrected for inflation. Uh, and what I think is really remarkable is at the far right, you see the peak in 2000 when the stock market was higher than ever before. Uh, you note that there is a huge run up and then a crash and then another run up which peaked in, at the end of 2007 and then another crash. So we are now down. 52% in real terms from that peak. The, the thing I want to stress uh, is that this, uh, how am I in my time now? Am I? Uh, 
I'm, okay. <laughs> I don't want to uh, wear out your uh, uh, patience. So the, uh, the, the market is down 52%. That boom was virtually unprecedented. Where do you see in US history do you see that happening before? Well, you see it happening once. Maybe I have to point to it. Uh, see that? That's the Roaring Twenties. And that was the period which historians often describe as exuberant uh, the, the, uh, and fearless in terms of investing. Uh, and it peaked in 1929, and the market went down 80%. Everything looked smaller then because everything was smaller. Uh, I don't have this on a log scale, but it's proportionally similar. Well, we've, we haven't gone down as much as, you know, but it's, you know, they're, they're kind of ballpark similar things. Uh, the, the green line, if you can see it at the bottom, is earnings on the S&P index. And you can see that there have been movements in earnings that correspond to these price movements. And so some people would say, well, the price is just reacting to earnings. But that's not true. The, the problem is that earnings are being driven by the same feedback cycle. I, I talked about this in Irrational Exuberance. You have people getting excited when prices are going up. So they, they get excited, and they spend more money. They think everything's great. Uh, and uh, they start telling stories that embellish this idea, and it causes prices to go up more. But it also causes earnings to go up. So you have price to earnings to price to earnings to price in an upward bubble. And it's very rarely acknowledged that this kind of feedback is happening. And then on the way down, unfortunately, it reinforces again. Prices start falling, so people start pulling back. First of all, they have less money. They might be bankrupt, by the way. But even if they're not, they're just worried because they see prices falling. And so they stop spending. So earnings go down. And then that reinforces further price. Decrease. So it's, it's another feedback on the, on the way down. Uh, and I think that's, that's what's then uh, uh, happening. Um, and again, the, the movements were always accompanied by stories. So in the boom period of the 90s, we had stories about internet millionaires, these young people who made so much money uh, in, a, in three months' time. <laughs> Uh, more than I've made in 10 years. Um, but it was also embellished, the idea that somehow technology was driving it. The idea that psychology was driving it never took hold. And it never got authority. The economics profession would just steadfastly stay away from it. You just look at the talk that they generate. They wouldn't tell these bubble stories. I look at textbooks of economics and finance and look in the index for bubble, and it's not there. Uh, it's starting to get there in some of them. But it's almost like the economics profession didn't want to acknowledge the phenomenon. It's a little bit like if you, know, if you brought up bubble in an economics seminar, it would be like bringing up astrology and horoscopes at the astronomy department seminar. <laughs> and you would be immediately be branded as someone who shouldn't be here. Um, so uh, 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 this is the price earnings ratio, the same data. Uh, and um, I show the price earnings ratio in 2000 at 46. I, I compute it a way that was recommended by Benjamin Graham and David Dodd in 1934, which is price divided by a long average of earnings. I, I think it's more revealing. And work that I did with John Campbell showed that this seems to forecast the market. When the price is high, it tends to go down. When the price earnings ratio is high, the stock market tends to go down afterwards. So. Uh, you can see there have been two major peaks in the price earnings ratio in 1929 and 2000. Now I have the long-term interest rate there shown, uh, but uh, that uh, uh, doesn't uh, 
explain the actual behavior of the price-earnings ratio. Uh, economists might want to try to fit some model. There was a model that was called the Fed model, popular around uh, the peak of the market in 2000, which said that if you look at data for just the last 30 years, you can see there's a negative relationship between interest rates and the stock market. And since interest rates are so low now, that justifies a very high market. Uh, in fact, Alan Greenspan said this. Um, but you notice that it, as soon as he said it, it became untrue. Interest rates kept going down, and then the market crashed. So I think it's, it's what happens when people are too focused on what one of the causes of this crisis was. Well, I bumped it. I'll come back to that. One of the causes of this crisis is that economics profession became very focused on quantitative methods, uh, and they, they tended to use short data periods uh, and uh, would uh, uh, it happened again and again. Models that were motivated by empirical correlations would just turn out to be untrue later with more data. And, and so I think we have to go back to thinking more about the fundamentals of what drives all this. Uh, so this is just uh, uh, the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500. Again, both in real terms. I deflated uh, the FTSE by the RPI and the um, S&P 500 by the US CPI. Uh, and it's just remarkable how similar these two countries are. Um, but, but again, I think that reflects cultural similarities. Uh, we really do speak the same language. And maybe you don't read our newspapers, and we don't read your newspapers. Well, actually, we do. We read the Financial Times now uh, everywhere. But uh, uh, the writers for these newspapers read each other's newspapers. And so there's an enforced uh, similarity in thinking. Um, so uh, another example showing similarity, this is uh, the Halifax uh, Home Price Index for Greater London uh, in real terms, directed for inflation, since um, uh, around the early 80s. And then uh, the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index. This is an index that Carl Case and I developed, and it's now published by Standard & Poor's. This is for Los Angeles. And I just kind of think, isn't it interesting that these two countries are really almost on, uh, they're nine hours apart, or eight hours apart. They're almost on the other side of the globe. And they look like, it's like the same thing, right? Los Angeles is like a suburb of London here. <laughs> it's so similar. Um, notice, it's, it's interesting to look at the picture. Both of these cities went through huge booms in the 80s. And, th and then they came all the way back down. Uh, it, you kind of wonder, how did people get the idea that home prices only go up? Uh, given that this is the data for U.S. and U.K. Um, it, it, it looks like the bubble in the 80s uh, uh, came earlier in, in London than Los Angeles, but uh, the bust in Los Angeles came a little earlier than that in London. So they're further along. I don't know what this portends for London uh, home prices, but I'm uh, a little worried. Uh, so uh, this, this is uh, going back to Los Angeles. This shows we have low, middle, and high-priced homes. And you can see that the bust, the boom and the bust was biggest in the low-priced homes. Uh, it's not those millionaires uh, rushing out to buy, although those may be the most dramatic stories. Uh, although this may not generalize to the UK. I don't know. But this reflects partly, I think, a decline in lending standards that occurred. It was based to our corruption theme, in a sense. I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's corruption, but what happened is that loans were being given to low-income people 
who really were not suitable for these loans. Uh, they were given it with uh, almost no money down. And, uh, and th these people are defaulting now in huge numbers. And it's bringing down the low side of the house. Uh, the red line is the uh, dropping a lot more than uh, anywhere else. Uh, so I just wanted to, my last slide is the um, slide I have showing the U.S. real estate market back to 1890. I created the red line here just to get some sense of how unusual this cycle is uh, in historical perspective. And uh, you see that on the far right, the far right of the red line, you see that up and down, that's the current bubble um, in a long historical perspective, bubble and burst. Uh, we've never seen anything like this before in U.S. history. Uh, we did see it in individual cities, there, but it was never so national. Uh, and actually, I would say so international. What has happened that is uh, unprecedented in history is that people have gotten the idea that buying a house is wonderful investment wherever you go. You can, you know, it used to be you had to buy it in London or Los Angeles, but now you can do it anywhere. That, that was the theory that developed. Um, and so I think it was a change in our speculative attitude, some of our theories that encouraged people. To, it, it really was true. I did questionnaire surveys of people in various cities. And in some cities, like Los Angeles, uh, during the boom, we asked people, what do you think will be the average home price increase per year for the next 10 years? Uh, and in our worst example, we got a, a mean response of 22% a year. Uh, but uh, more consistent than that was that it's always about a third of the people thought it would be some astronomical number. And I, these people have never thought through it. It can't be that home prices go up at 10% a year every year. Do you know what that would compound to? It's not true. In fact, what I did is I found that home, price in this, uh, home prices in the U.S. have been just about flat from 100 years in real terms, from 1890 to 1990. Uh, so what developed is a theory that we're running out of land, and so home prices should just keep going up and up. But it didn't happen for 100 years. I think the theory is wrong and misleading. I also think it's wrong and misleading in the U.K. People said, well, that's the U.S. You've got huge amounts of land, and we in the U.K. don't. But I don't think that really makes a difference, because uh, what will tend to happen is that the UK will move, and maybe there's a political difference, but let's just talk about the basic fundamentals. The UK will just gradually move out of agriculture, and agriculture and the world economy will move to places like the US, and if your politics allow it, you'll spread out over that agricultural land. The price of land will be the same in the UK as anywhere else, because there's a world market for land. It should all be the same. That's, that's an economic theory. Home prices shouldn't go up in the UK because there's technical progress. It's been going on for 100 years. They build them more and more efficiently. And with more and more, and more uses, intense use of land prices. This may not apply to London, central London. But uh, people don't think like that. And they created an intense bubble. So anyway, I, I'm done with my slides. And let me just say, um, I, I, in just in concluding, I think that uh, fortunately in both the UK and the US and around the world, our national leaders and our central bankers have not constrained themselves to the kind of responses that would be suggested by economic theory. They're going back to their intuition uh, and they're 
that's, that's a good sign. They're public-spirited people. Uh, and I think that they can see what's happening. And they have done a constructive response. So we may be emerging from this depression scare. I don't know. Uh, I, my suspicion is that we're going to have drops in confidence again as new bad news develops. Uh, but at least so far, they've been prevented any real serious damage. I think, though, that the stimulus package may be inadequate, or probably is inadequate. The IMF recent study said that the average country, advanced country, has been spending something like 2% of GDP on stimulus. But we're seeing drops. Uh, the UK GDP dropped 1.9% in the first quarter uh, of this year. So that making a 2% stimulus for the year doesn't sound like enough. Uh, so Akerlof and I thought that the government should have an aggressive fiscal target right away and an aggressive credit target uh, to get the economy, uh, to, to prevent the economy from generating any evil stories. Uh, and uh, uh, fortunately, they've gone part way to that. And maybe if we're, uh, if, if we're lucky, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, we will come out of this. I, I, I don't. I mentioned this book is, is a work in progress. I don't have a good way of forecasting. Let me come back to the central question, which is on everyone's mind. Is it possible that we just got our confidence back? Is it that crazy? Uh, and I, my own answer to that is, maybe it is that crazy. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is. We haven't had bad news for a while. The governments have been reassuring. And uh, we start getting into a positive feedback. I wouldn't be too sure, but I'll give that as a, a possibility. And finally, let me just say that I think that uh, I'm hopeful that this crisis will generate some good efforts to expand our capitalist economy to work better for the people. And that means responding to this crisis with longer-run measures that are informed. Uh, I, this is my other book, so I won't get into it. Subprime solution. I talked about applying behavioral economics to redesigning our economic institutions. But not just applying that, but applying financial theory. A mathematical finance does show a way toward reducing risks. And if we apply it to help people, um, we can uh, help prevent this kind of uh, crisis from happening in, in another generation or so. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll let uh, some people obviously have to leave, so if they could clear the floor, then we'll have our questions. <laughs> okay, could you be as quick as you can, those that, that have got to go, and um, then we'll settle down and get into the discussion. Thanks very much, Bob, for a very stimulating talk. Um, actually, uh, before we have some questions, I think I might ask you one myself, if I may. Um, so mine will be slightly academic. Um, the, a lot of what you've talked about today is sort of very plausible, and I think would appeal to lots of people of, as an explanation of what's happening in the world. Um, it's a story that corresponds to a lot of our experience. Uh, but as uh, academic economists, we're sort of 
at least some of us tr uh, act as if or at least believe that we're doing science and we're trying to <laughs> we're trying to discover regularities and explain regularities and we try to look for factors that might be common across sets of phenomena and we get lots of students to do the kind of well the sort of stuff that you've uh, taught lots of them to do a lot of uh, time series cross-sectional analysis to pick up on this is this something that we can actually get uh, really to grips with in terms of key economic factors that are going to crop up time and time again or is it really a, an add-on to what we're doing and a set of cautionary tales to limit what we might sort of conclude from our economic analysis yeah well first I, I hope it was clear that I am pro-economic analysis and I'm pro-econometric in fact I you know I made my fortune with econometrics in a sense because we I didn't make a fortune, <laughs> but I, I wish I did. But I did. These S&P case-shiller indices, that's econometrics and not uh, behavioral economics. Uh, and I, I love mathematical economics. I think that in some sense, uh, attention to behavioral economics is not a threat to mathematical economics. It's the salvation for it. The problem with mathematical economics is that those models are only so good they, they, they have limits. They're, they're only applied in certain circumstances. They're designed for a certain application, and you just can't generalize them. But they developed an atmosphere in the profession where people would do the dumbest generalization. They would apply them where they just shouldn't be applied. So it's a, it's a little bit like theoretical physics. You develop models of, of the planets in a vacuum, but when you come down to Earth, you've got to take account of friction. And, uh, and the, the, Now, you're, you're right, though, about this particular animal spirits discussion is that it seems a little bit hard to make scientific. Because I'm emphasizing a story, or we are emphasizing, George and I, that there's a story that drives the economy. And that sounds, um, it almost takes a different mental faculty. So uh, there, there's, uh, cognitive scientists have pointed out that there are certain regions of the brain that are devoted toward quantitative analysis. And there are other regions of the brain that are, uh, that are devoted toward uh, what they call a model of mind. Our brain is designed to keep us focused on what other people are thinking. And we, we, we develop in our mind a view as to what other people are thinking. Some of us are better than others at it. Some of us who are very poor at judging other people's thinking, we, we label as autistic or they have problems. Uh, we have to make use of that mental faculty. And it's that mental faculty uh, theory of mind is hard. To, you can't quantify. It's hard. It's a matter of human judgment. So it may be that it's difficult. Um, uh, it's difficult uh, to be uh, quantitative. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't think that we want to be. I think there's different approaches that are scientific, uh, like experimental economics or um, um, Obviously, the use of survey data, survey, which you did. Yeah. Yeah. So, we've got uh, quite a lot of questions, actually. Um, I'll take yours first, Bernard, and then we'll move here and then over there. Then I'll go upstairs. Yeah. Bernard Casey from uh, Warwick University. Um, I suppose my question is um, since we're in a university, is why don't people learn? Um, and uh, the 
the notion of contagion, which you did use the term once, is not entirely um, new to us. We, we, we dealt with questions of contagion. We were confronted with that 10 years ago in the Asian crisis. And we clearly didn't learn anything from that. Um, now, um, the next question is then people seem to have extremely short memories. Or perhaps it comes back to that question of, you know, who is building these models and what periods of time are they feeding into them? Um, and um, uh, th there are these sort of questions about, you know, kind of have we ever seen 25 standard deviations um, movements? And yes, we have if we bother to look far enough into the past. Um, so why don't we learn is my first question. My second question, which is related to this, is, okay, in terms of animal spirits and in terms of contagion, would you not um, agree with my theory that what we're not worried about and suffering from at the moment is, a fear, is, is Mexican flu, but rather it is Gardarine swine fever? Uh, what is that, Bernard? The Gardarine swine <laughs> Those of you who actually studied their Bibles and whatever will know about the Gardarine swine. These were the people, these were just not just ordinary pigs, the Gardarine swine. These were the people, the pigs who really behaved extraordinarily badly and were pushing their snouts into the troughs harder and faster than oh, everybody I else. I so recommend this is your you term for bankers, is it? Okay, <laughs> right. The, uh, uh, I, sus that's, 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 I suspect there are a lot of Gardarine swine oh, around. Okay, thank you very much for the thought. <laughs> okay, it's a very interesting, uh, a very interesting question. Uh, how uh, smart people make mistakes, and people have written books about this. Uh, you mentioned the Asian crisis. Why didn't we learn about that? Um, Paul Krugman wrote a book right after the Asian crisis, or during it, called "The Return of Depression Economics," and he had some kind of uh, negative outlook expressed in there. He became in some ways, the laughing stock of the nation five years later. He wrote a book saying the return of depression economics, and, and now here the economy is just booming. Uh, and, um, but uh, he, I don't know if you noticed, it's in all the airports now. He's got the book, a new it's edition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I bought it. You know, it seems like we make some very elementary mistakes that, that uh, maybe Krugman was right, you know, about this, but maybe it's going to take another 10 years before the bad stuff to happen. Uh, and that seemed like an awfully naive mistake. But it, it does seem like we get experts who are very sophisticated in one way and are making some really big mistake in another way. Like the, like the idea of, uh, I was at a conference recently and someone was, it was a couple of years ago, and he was analyzing correlations, optimal portfolios for uh, uh, housing markets and uh, stock market. And he was using the RPX data on home prices. And I, he pointed out this amazing return on houses. And I asked him, I said, but wait a minute. Your data only covers the boom period. <laughs> and he said, well, but I like the RPX data, and it doesn't go back before 2000. And, uh, and, he, and then he said, believe it or not, this is at a big conference, this is what everyone does, isn't it? <laughs> There's this appeal to. Uh, and so it's. There, social psychologists worry about this, and there's a term called groupthink that is used to describe the errors that experts make. And, and it's related partly that we have pride in, in our expertise, and we will not bring up something that doesn't seem to conform to the accepted uh, 
forms of evidence. We'll disallow certain evidence because it's not professional. And people self-censor their views. And so you can have a seminar when actually 70% of the people are thinking, you know, this doesn't look right to me. But they won't say it because it would be rude and impolite. And they don't estimate how many other doubts there are. Uh, the, the classic thing is Irving Janus and uh, his book Groupthink. In the, he talked about the Bay of Pigs invasion when Jack, Jack Kennedy ordered a US invasion of Cuba. And it was an utter fiasco. It almost lost him the presidency. And he interviewed everyone in the Pentagon. And they all told him they doubted it, but they didn't want to inter The president had decided <laughs> and they weren't going to raise these doubts, which seemed uh, intangible and hard to, uh, hard to quantify. Could you identify yourself? Uh, Mike Joffey from Imperial College. Um, in your talk and also in your recent books, you've been talking mostly about financial markets and the housing market and property, which are prone to these bubbles. There are also other uh, things like dot-coms and, mm -hmm. in the old days, tulips, where you get bubbles. But there are large sectors of the economy where you don't tend to get this. And I'm just wondering whether conventional textbook models of economics actually apply in these other sectors really rather well, whereas these bubbles-prone one, maybe there's some kind of different thing going on there, and if so, why would that be? Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you that um, this is not a uh, condemnation of all, of, or even most of economics. Um, uh, I remember uh, I served on the National Science Foundation panel to evaluate economic research proposals a number of years ago. And I was in kind of a negative mood, expecting a lot of bad proposals. But there's, if, if you look at what comes forth among economic research, there's so much variety of different things that they do. And it's not all, I'm not able to criticize all of that. It's, it's but you know what, what it is, it seems to me, is uh, in some sense we're finding a fault in our academic um, incentive system that, uh, I have graduate students. I just had one the other day. He took my course in behavioral economics, and he came to me discussing his dissertation proposal, and it was a little bit far out on the rational side. And I said, you took my course. Well, why are you doing this? And he said, and quite honestly, he said, I've got to find a job. And he said, I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think that this is the thing to do. Um, but it's also, it's, it's also a thing that we have certain methods that we're good at. And unfortunately, those guys in the psych department, we don't get along too well with them. And we don't know how to do what they do anyway. And so we're, we're kind of following a method. And that's not altogether bad. I mean, I think that we do have, uh, I'm still, I'm writing a paper right now on pricing of financial derivatives that uses a rational op optimization model. Uh, I would think that I would also expect that there will be bubbles in these markets. But uh, the first step is to say, well, how would they work when everyone's rational? Over here, on the right. Yeah. Uh, I'll come to you next. Yeah. Just to follow up on the earlier academic question, you make a very eloquent case for taking account of the insights from applied ethics, sociology, anthropology, and particularly psychology. But I'm still not entirely clear whether you're arguing for co-opting the insights from these disciplines into the super, a new super paradigm of economics where they capture systematic regularities, or whether you're arguing instead for more interdisciplinarity when studying particular problems like financial markets, um, an interdisciplinarity to try and establish the boundaries of applicability of standard 
economic model. So in other words, are you looking for a smarter, new imperial paradigm of economics or a more interdisciplinary approach? Uh, well, I don't know if there's a clear distinction. I, can, or sure, I can't answer one or the other. Um, it seems like the profession is, uh, is not skeptical enough of these rational models. I, I, actually, it's a trend, though. I think it's being corrected. In, in a sense, I'm outdated to describe the profession as, as not a... Uh, I find it interesting to go through successive editions of textbooks. So I, I recently went through uh, successive editions of really admires corporate finance. And I found in a 19, early 1980s edition of their textbook, they had this remarkable statement about efficient markets. And they said, the fundamental lesson that we learned from lots of research, I'm paraphrasing them, is that one should trust markets. Uh, they excise that line from the book by the late 80s, <laughs> although they still extolled efficient markets. Now, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, they are talking extensively about work questioning the efficient markets hypothesis. So uh, we're moving in that direction. Uh, I, I, I would really wish that we could come up with a new canonical theory. There was some hope of, of economics. Uh, there was some hope when Kahneman and Tversky published their prospect theory in Econometrica in 79, because that looked like something you could, you could cut out the expected utility model and paste in the prospect theory model. And to some extent, people have done that. But it's been a disappointment. Uh, and maybe that's because the prospect theory model isn't quite as elegant and uh, clear, as because it has an issue about framing, which is ambiguous. Uh, and so we still haven't got that. I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, we, want mis we want interdisciplinary work. And that seems to be a lesson for academia that we're getting. But maybe we can develop some new theoretical framework. We haven't completed. We haven't done that. But, but, but I think your co-author, George Akalop, said importer of sociology into economics. I mean, he was here last year and talked about his identity as right. a concept in sociology and tried to explain a lot of economic phenomena with that. That's right. Uh, I, I, he's writing a book with Rachel Cranton on uh, identity in economics. Mm -hmm. And they make the important point. Economists tend to describe people as wanting to consume. That's all we care about. We're completely selfish, and we want to uh, maximize our own present discounted value of the utility of consumption. But uh, he points out something that sociologists have talked about enormously, about social norms, that uh, norms affect our behavior. Uh, and uh, I mean, um, why do we leave tips? Uh, you leave a tip behind in a restaurant, even though you'll never be back there again. If you, uh, this kind of behavior, it's because there's a social norm to do that, I guess, or, or some moral. Uh, the economists don't talk about morality enough, that, uh, that people are actually motivated by principles. Uh, Over here, same uh, row. Yes, um, economic theory has always been heavily influenced by political theory since the days of Karl Marx. And the prevailing theory for the last 30 years in the US and the UK has been free econo market economics. And today, free market economists are actually saying the lesson of the crash is not that um, there should be more government regulation, but less government regulation. 
because the crisis was actually caused not by the banks, but by the government, because they forced the banks to make all these loans that they would never have done otherwise. If the market had been led to uh, function itself, uh, these problems would, would um, never have happened. And they say that things like hedge funds, which are not regulated, came through unscathed, which I find, um, you know, which is simply not true. I believe in spring of 2007, two hedge funds went bust in the US, which caused the seizing up of the interbank market, which um, seems to have generated the immediate cause of this crash. And, you know, free market economists are saying uh, it's, it's all the government's fault, you know, nothing to do with, with the banks. Do you buy this um, theory? Well, obviously, I don't buy it. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's remarkable that we don't even have any agreement on that. Uh, it, it goes back to my thing of what drove, uh, what drives the economy. So uh, there are a number of, there's a couple of books. One that comes to mind is John Taylor, who was uh, a Stanford University professor, has a new book out claiming, as you say, that the whole thing was caused by the government. Uh, and he's at the Hoover Institute. It's kind of a, it seems to be politically left versus right. So the right wing is more likely to want to blame the government, well, obviously. Um, but the remarkable thing is that 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 uh, that our books are at such opposition. We're saying that it's the people and the irrational exuberance of animal spirits that's driving things, and he thinks it's Alan Greenspan uh, and George W. Bush that uh, that uh, that caused this. It uh, doesn't sound right. He'd have to do it on an international basis too. Uh, that all these different governments of the world develop very wrong-headed policies at the same time. Uh, I guess maybe the truth is somewhere in between, but I, th I tend to think of the government's mistakes as the same, the, have the same origin as the mistakes I'm talking about. So what, were the, what did the Fed or the central banks do wrong in this crisis? Well, they didn't appreciate it. They thought there was no problem. They believed in efficient markets. Uh, Alan Greenspan was years behind his time. He wasn't reading the uh, efficient market, the behavioral economics literature. And so he thought that there was nothing to do. He repeatedly said that he respected the markets. And he wouldn't, even though he was so highly esteemed a leader, wouldn't presume to judge the markets. Uh, so I, uh, I wish we could have closure on this point. Did the government do this? Or did the governments of the world do this? I don't think they did. Uh, and I guess the reason why it stays alive as a controversy is because it's, it's tied up. Our political feelings seem to be tied up with a lot of our views of ourself as well and our self-esteem. So uh, people who have a more conservative bent tend to value the sense of, in, well, how to put it, independence. Uh, I, I'm not a political scientist, but <laughs> it seems to me that it's right that, that our book looks left-leaning relative to uh, Taylor's book. And, and uh, there's some wishful thinking that affects our judgment um, that may uh, distort our sense of the origins of these things. And, and it, the origins of all of these booms are sufficiently difficult to trace. Uh, I guess we can let our imaginations uh, push us in the too far uh, in one direction. Okay, I'll take this, you, then you, yeah. Okay, the young lady there in the third or fourth row from the back. 
Hi, so I'm not studying economics, so I think my question may come across as a bit naive, but um, I'm wondering when You're do we- You're not studying economics? I'm not studying economics, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I am wondering when do we know that the economy has recovered? Because there's so many fluctuations in your charts, so I'm wondering what is, what is normal in the economy? Because obviously we can't return to that peak moment since that has proven not to be sustainable. So I'm wondering, how do we know the economy has recovered? Well, um, the, uh, it, it's, it does seem that historically, uh, it, you never know that it's recovered because there might be a recovery, apparent recovery, where, where the stock market is going up. That's where we are now. I might continue to do this, but you never know when it won't turn around and go back. In, in the, uh, uh, go back to the Great Depression example, uh, I showed you that 80% decline in stock prices. It bottomed out in 32. The economy seemed to reach a bottom in 33. With the election of President Roosevelt, I know the Europe, the UK was r earlier bottoming out, but in the US, uh, uh, there seemed to be an inspiration and the economy went on this great recovery. But then it faltered again and collapsed again. Uh, so there, there are these double dip, uh, there's these W-shaped recoveries that happen. Um, so you, I don't know what you want to know. You want me to tell you when it, I give you an all-clear sign? <laughs> How many quarters of good, solid economic growth? Or the the problem like that. is that this kind of <laughs> a big bubble burst, history suggests, could lead to many years of, of suboptimal behavior. And I, I think it's not wrong to bring the Japanese example up. They had twin bubbles in the housing market and the stock market, and it was different because they were alone in the world to have such big bubbles. And it was associated, it, it was different. Now we have a global story. It's a story about capitalism triumphant everywhere. But in the 1980s, it was a story of Japan triumphant. And it didn't have an epidemic. It didn't spread to other nations. And then it burst in Japan. And then they have had, since then, uh, almost 20 years of suboptimal performance. And their housing market declined from 1991 to 2006. There were 15 consecutive years of decline. Uh, now, why did that happen? It's not well understood, and I guess you get many different opinions. But to me, it has something to do with the change in animal spirits. In the 1980s, Japan was an inspired country, and they were winning, and everyone was. And then they, they, it, it, it affected their culture. And it's not too bad. Japan has been growing over this whole period, but slower. And that's the kind of thing that could happen. Uh, and I, I find it hard to uh, quantify or predict that. Yeah. Uh, at the front here. Hi. Um, just a sh uh, quick question, or a short, short question. Um, I, I got from your um, presentation that you now think that stories drive the economy. I'm more from the old school that fundamentals drive the economy. Um, where, where would you sit on that argument? Well, the problem, yeah, uh, the question then is, what are the fundamental? Wh what fundamental changed? Now, you could say that it was government. I guess that's what people would say. The, the colossal errors made by uh, Mervyn King and Alan Greenspan, uh, is that the source? Uh, it doesn't seem right to me. I, I, I can't believe that these guys are the source of all of our problems. And so what other fundamentals? 
You know, people talk about um, uh, what gold discoveries have driven uh, have driven the world uh, booms in the past. I mentioned uh, the, the railroad or the invention of the airplane. They drove uh, uh, they drove the economy. Um, so is there something like that happening in reverse now? I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I go back to I, I said Franklin Roosevelt said there's no plague of locusts. He couldn't think of anything real that would account for the depression. Nothing. Uh, so people are grasping around trying to find some explanation. And they naturally turn to this guy sitting in the central bank who's vulnerable because this person is making regular decisions that impact the economy. That's the guy to blame. Um, but it doesn't sound right to me. No, it's we, we blame Fred Goodwin these, in this country. Sir Fred, the, bit, the chap with his big pension. Um, the, I think you were first and then Professor, I'm, I'm a little disturbed by what I hear in the sense I, I hear you flipping backwards and forwards between admiring the economic profession and then putting it down somewhat when they don't have an explanation for what has happened. And I don't think that explanation for what has happened lies with uh, behavioral economics, although I appreciate what the work you, you and your colleagues do. Um, I mean you can go back and you can claim that Greenspan and King were guilty of taking the eyes off the ball and allowing this thing to merge. But you can go back even further and argue that globalization in its, in, its, in its basic form allowed this to happen because we allowed Asia to go on with its growth and, and move into the savings surplus. And I know that there's a lot of debate about whether it's a savings glut or a spending, it's too much spending. But at the end of the day, this, thing would, this crisis would not have happened that we not had this enormous savings moving through reducing interest rates and the results of this reduction of interest rates and this expansion in, 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 in the US and elsewhere uh, and this, uh, this um, desire for return by the banks where returns had fallen so low, they were, quote, forced, <laughs> no one forced them, but forced to go out and look for other avenues of a return. So I, 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 I'm a little confused because I, I, I think there is a role for behavioral economics. I think the observation you make in your latest book about how after the crash, the dot-com crash, um, Enron and, uh, and um, WorldCom caused people to rethink their investments in equities. And they said that they didn't understand what they were buying because uh, the, the accountants had misled them. There, there was nothing there. It was they were paper tigers, and therefore uh, there was an added incentive for people to move back to bricks and mortar. And this was an added factor, but not the factor that caused people to move to bricks and mortar. And um, I, I, I take your point about Taylor, that this is, I've read the book and I understand it, and I've read his article and I understand it, and, um, but there's no question that monetary policy was too accommodative. There's no debate about that. There's no debate that the regulatory environment was uh, was completely conducive to this this the circus we are in now. There's no debate that the politicians, uh, not coerced, but created the environment where they had to look after the subprime people and, and create subprime loans. So when, when you can't ignore all that, and I know you don't. Yeah. But then you 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 come back to this the stories, and in a sense the story we have now of people 
around the world buying property because it was, it was a no-brainer and it was a piggy bank is a story also to do with the end of a hundred years war, the, the, this great moderation we had where inflation came down. So economists can, to a degree, to a large degree, explain what has happened. So you're asking whether or not he agrees with what you said. No, no, I'm not quite, <laughs> I'm not quite there yet because I, th I think that, that we, you know, the, uh, uh, there is an acknowledgement. I mean, Kindleberger's book many years ago about bubbles acknowledged that economists look at bubbles. Uh, it was in his title when he wrote about the... Uh he was my teacher, by the way. Oh, well, you were lucky. <laughs> Fortunate. I thought he was an uh, outcast on that <laughs> view of the time. Well, but he wrote the book. <laughs> and so, so do you agree? I mean, uh, that's the evidence that economists would put forward. Oh, okay, so uh, I think you've made the point, yeah. Bob, yeah. Uh, well, okay. I First of all, the savings go out theory, I know that it's been proposed... Uh, it's obviously a factor. It's not as if there was a world a r r rise in the world saving rate, because uh, uh, it was um, high in Asia and relatively low in the U.S. and Canada and uh, I guess in Europe. Um, so there was no saving glut for the world, but there was a uh, there was indeed uh, a effort from Asian countries to invest abroad, notably in the U.S. And that, that created pressure to invest the money in the U.S. Uh, and that's part of the story. Part of that, though, uh, we talk about in our book. The question in is, why were the Asians saving so much? <laughs> uh, you say that you're describing that as an exogenous factor, which I suppose it's part of the story. I, I don't think it's the whole story. But let's take that as given. Why were they saving so much? And uh, we talk about this. Uh, we, we try to get into the minds of, of the Chinese people. Uh, and uh, maybe it's uh, difficult for us to do that. But part of the reason, I think, that's fundamental to this is that the Chinese have in mind a very powerful story that drives them, which is the story of renewed Chinese greatness, that China was one of the earliest civilizations. They invented the printed book. They invented gunpowder. They invented, I don't know, all sorts of things. It's a great country, and it has been held back, but it's returning now to greatness. And this 21st century is the Chinese century. I, I may be oversimplifying. This is a caricature <laughs> of what they feel. And they feel a duty for, uh, to make this happen. This is a time of transition. Uh, and so this is not a time for conspicuous consumption. Now, some of them do it, but I'm saying overall, people have this sense of mission. Uh, if Chinese culture is very aimed, devoted toward children, people today really don't feel like buying big and expensive things at the expense of saving because they have this sense of mission and purpose. You go to other countries, advanced countries, and we don't have this feeling. We don't. Uh, and so uh, I think a story, I, may, I don't know if I've uh, said it right exactly, but it is a story driving high Asian savings. And it's a different story driving the negative saving rates we've seen in the United States. What's the different story? The story is, uh, well, it, it, it's well, obviously <laughs> a caricature, but it's something about proving your, your worth by, by showing that you, you've made it and uh, 
you, you really want to buy this big McMansion in the nice part of town because that's you know, your children will get ahead by, by living in that. It, it establishes us as an important family and they'll meet other children who are going places. It's these stories that are ultimately behind the things that, you, and, and when you talk about monetary policy being too accommodating, that was driven by a story. Alan Greenspan was accommodating, and at the same time, he was getting a lot of press for his wisdom and understanding that we don't need to choke off inflation, that, that, that productivity is going through an amazing boom now tied to the internet and other advances, and, and he was thought to be a genius for recognizing this. Uh, and again, it was a story that was driving his thinking. Ultimately, that's how we form our intuition about things. Well, I think, I think just a sort of slight interjection in that. The, I mean, it's fair to say, though, that uh, the U.S. has got a pretty high wealth-to-income ratio and the Chinese quite low, and the Chinese have uh, regulated their exchange rate, which has helped this well, there's a lot of factors. Yeah, yeah. but the uh, plus the one-child policy, yeah, they invest exactly. in capital rather than children, and that sort of. They've got nobody to pay their pensions other than us. But we don't have any kids either, so there you go. Okay, <laughs> over, over here. Ah, somebody at the top. You, you get you. Oh my God, we're running out of time. Can you be quick? We've got to get one question from the top, otherwise. Uh, you told us a story uh, where animal spirits are important, and I think. Uh, um, people accept that, including probably most economists in their heart at least, even not in their papers. Uh, so, but there's this question that you raised, why uh, they don't allow animal spirits into their models. And you mentioned prospect theory as one paper, the, the econometric article as one paper which could have perhaps changed things but didn't really, and my question is, can you imagine, you know, let's say the abstract of a paper in econometric AR, whatever, that would somehow change this practice of economists? Or what could potentially change the academic practice of how people write models in economics? Well, I don't know. The, the best answer is this crisis will change the situation. So I think that uh, this is a crisis for econ economics. So a recent issue of Business Week had a cover story it was in big block letters. What good are economists anyway? Uh, and uh, and I, it's, it seems to me that there will be a response. I find it very hard to predict uh, what kind of research will go on. Uh, maybe that's not a good answer, but uh, uh, I, can't I can't lay out a course for the whole profession. I'm, af I'm afraid that uh, we now have a lot of questions. Unfortunately, they've all come a little bit late. There's a forest of hands. Laura, can I ask one short question from the top? Then we've got to go. Okay. I'm getting instructions from the back. Okay. Somebody from up there. I think the chap in the white shirt is holding the book. Well, sorry. Thanks very much. Um, a question on what you would say to policymakers now, because I think you're trying to tell us that animal spirits can be understood well by policymakers now asymmetrically in the sense that They've probably been very skillful dealing with uh, animal spirits in the last year and from a negative basis, so from tempering pessimism. But how would you recommend policymakers, say you're having lunch with yeah. Mervyn King tomorrow on the uh, tempering euphoria? I, I, uh, I think that Mervyn King and other policymakers are constrained by public opinion. So maybe our book is uh, trying to alter, uh, if we were so successful, <laughs> public opinion so that they're not constrained 
they seem to have the right instincts, but they maybe uh, are vulnerable to criticism. And th the kind of thing is that happened in the Great Depression. They didn't put on fiscal policy strong enough. They did. They did this deficit spending, or they called it pump priming. They didn't do it strong enough, and the, the national debt was starting to rise, and people got worried about that. And th they, since they didn't do it soon enough and aggressively enough, the public started demanding that they pull it out. And so they stopped, they, they pulled back on, it, on fiscal stimulus. And they, and they tightened interest rates because there was a fear of inflation, uh, uh, believe it or not, in the Great Depression. And, uh, and so I, I, I guess our message, our immediate message is, we like what we've seen happening in the UK and the US. We wish it had more social support. When we have people like John Taylor dis dissing this. And, uh, we have to uh, try to establish some academic rationale for this. I, uh, I have to bring things to an end, sadly. It's 2 o'clock now, so I'd like to thank you.